Well, good morning again, One Ancient Hope. Glad to be with you, glad to be back um, from New York, where I was this last week for a wedding. We are entering into a three-week series that I've uh, somewhat cheekily called Citizens of Heaven, the Integration of Church and State. And the title comes from the book of Philippians, uh, particularly chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. So I'd love to read that text. It says, For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So as I was in prayer um, these past few weeks wondering, what should our first teaching series be about, I noticed stirring up within me uh, a lot of unrest about this current political moment. And um, what I noticed is that I sensed anger welling up in me towards those who hold a different political view than my own. I also felt fear about what will happen if the person I'm voting for is not the person who gets elected or is elected. I, I, I felt fear not just over the policies, but I noticed I also felt fear about what is going to happen with uh, the protest or the violence over whoever gets elected. There seems to be so much brewing. And then I noticed a bit of hopelessness, honestly, about both of the candidates, about both parties, and even about the whole system as a whole. Then I sensed pride in me, growing about how could someone vote for this other person? I started to belittle and dehumanize. So I realized within myself alone, anger, fear, hopelessness, pride, all of these things that are not of the spirit. Of course, I had to repent, but I I also realized I'm not alone in this. A recent Pew study reveals that only 12% of Americans are happy with the state of the country. 71% are fearful and 66% are angry. So let me tell two stories that are about eight years apart. In 2008, I was living in Chicago. um, And that year, I actually worked the polls. I was a student in college, and, and they paid fairly well. So I worked the polls that day on election day, and Obama was was in Chicago when uh, the polls finally came in, saying that he had won the election. So I think it was that night, or, or maybe the next night, he was there to give a little a speech in Millennium Park. And um, <clears throat> I mean, it was a huge deal. The trains had to be shut down because too many people were trying to get to them. The streets going to the park were filled with people. I mean, shoulder to shoulder, 
crammed in like sardines, and the crowd was ecstatic. Even before Obama gave his speech, people were chanting, you know, Obama, or we have hope. I mean, it was um, insane. People were crying tears of joy. It was more creaming, uh, screaming, shouting, crying than uh, uh, like a Pentecostal revival service. I mean, it was a lot of emotion. I was surrounded by people who had placed their hope in Obama. And his election meant to them that salvation had arrived. It was a little disheartening to see the extremeness of it. Then in 2016, eight years later, I was living in New York City. Uh, The results for the election that year came in very late at night. It might have even technically been Wednesday morning uh, in New York. And that morning I was working at a coffee shop. I had the opening shift. So I got up very early to go there. And the vibe in Manhattan, it, it was dark. I mean... Literally, it was a cloudy November day, but also there was uh, like this deep spirit of melancholy. Now, I'm not exaggerating. Customers were coming in with tears of sorrow. They were coming in to get their coffee, and they'd be like, can you believe what just happened? And they would leave weeping. Grown men dressed in their business suits walking down Fifth Avenue with tears down their eyes. And I left my shift at the coffee shop that day feeling more exhausted than I do after a full day of pastoral counseling. There was a lot of emotion, a lot of sadness, particularly in New York. Now, I share these two stories to highlight the way that politics can be all-consuming. It can be hope-inspiring or crushing. It is literally demanding of our allegiance. And Jesus, of course, offers another way. And this is what we will be exploring these next three weeks. And particularly, we'll be exploring it through the lenses of our church's three stated values, which are that we are gospel-centered, we care about formation, and flourishing. Now, because politics can be so divisive, and can instill so much emotion in us. I just want to put my cards on the table early, right? So you're not wondering, is he going to tell us to vote for so-and-so? Is he going to be dissing on this person or that party or this or that? I don't plan or hope to do any of that. But if you don't hear anything else during these next three weeks, please hear this. No political ideology is sophisticated or nuanced enough to anticipate and heal the complex, multifaceted brokenness of humanity. Only God in Christ is capable of that. So to him, to his ideals and his purposes, we give our allegiance. As we vote and engage in our civil duties, which I believe we should do, we do so by asking this question. Who or what best promotes human flourishing in alignment with the creative intention of God? Again, who or what 
best promotes human flourishing in alignment with the creative intention of God. So let's dive into our text this morning. Matthew twenty-two fifteen. You can follow along if you have a Bible with you or if you'd like to follow along on your phone. I'll be reading particularly from the English Standard Version. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. So early on in the text, we now have two religious political groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees, again, are are, are pretty popular. We talk about them a lot. Um, But politically, they, they did want independence for the Jewish people. The Jewish people at that time were under Roman rule, And the Pharisees did want independence, but what they wanted was rulership to come from the kingdom and lineage of David. David was the great king of Israel, and the Pharisees longed to see a day again when the prophecies of Isaiah would be fulfilled and a Messiah would come from the lineage of David and politically rule over Israel and Judea again. Now, the Herodians are only mentioned a couple times in the Gospels. They're, they're not mentioned very often, but we have to ask, why are they mentioned here? Why are they brought along with the Pharisees? The majority of scholarship sees these Herodians as a public political group seeking to reinstate rulership of Judea to someone in the lineage of Herod the Great. So like the Pharisees, they want political independence for the Jewish people, but they disagreed about who should rule. Herod the Great, if you don't have um, an excellent sense of first century Israel history, which many of us don't, I wouldn't if I didn't have to study these things. Herod the Great, though, was known um, as the Roman king of Judea leading up to Jesus' birth. He's known for these colossal building projects throughout Judea. He's the one who, who reinstated the renovation of the second temple in Jerusalem. So there's reason for some Jewish people to really like Herod. However, he's also famous for having one of his wives and his own sons executed, as well as issuing a genocide of innocent children when Jesus was born. Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas, is who beheads John the Baptist. What's interesting about Herod the Great is that he followed these Jewish uh, rituals, purity rituals, and customs. He followed them publicly. So he might have even appeared as a faithful Jew. But he also took great advantage of the comforts of Roman culture. What I want is for this to point out how intertwined religion and politics was for the first century Jews and how two very different groups of people, two very different parties, the Pharisees and the Herodians could come together against a common enemy, Jesus of Nazareth. Continuing on with our text, they say, teacher, we know that you are true. Teacher, Rabbi, we know that you are true, 
and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. I mean, they're really buttering Jesus up here. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? I mean, taxes are a hot button issue, right? They always are. I know some people whose primary concern at every election is this. Will they raise my taxes? And that's going to decide the vote for them. But the question here is even more loaded because it's intentionally a trap. They don't just want to know about taxes. They want Jesus busted. If Jesus answers, pay your taxes, he'll be unpopular with the people. And he'll be deemed unfit to be a prophet by the Pharisees. You see, they resented this once-a-year poll tax to Rome. They hated the Romans. They thought it was idolatry to pay the tax and submit themselves to Rome to do anything that would further the Roman cause. It was despised by the people. But on the other hand, if Jesus says, don't pay your taxes, then he'll be in trouble with Rome and with the Herodians that are there. They'll squash him as a revolutionary. Answer one way. And the Pharisees are there to get the crowds fired up and turn against Jesus. Answer the other way. And the Herodians are there to go to the officials in Rome who'll seek Jesus' arrest. They're kind of like, check, Jesus, we got you. You can't get out of this. Verse 18, but Jesus, aware of their malice, he said, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness or image or literally icon and inscription or literally epigraph is this? And they said, it's Caesar's. Now, prior to Julius Caesar, coins would only have images of previous dignitaries or ancestors on them. But Julius wanted images of the living emperor on them, of the current emperor. He knew that the best way to inspire loyalty and worship was through money. A denarius was equivalent about to a day's wage. You might say it's like a $100 bill today. Uh, The the denarius particularly was a a silver coin and it had the head of Tiberius Caesar on it, who was the third emperor of Rome. He was the Roman emperor from about AD 14 to 37. So it aligns actually almost perfectly with the chronology of the gospels. So the coin had a picture of the emperor on one side of his head, which is why they respond Caesar's images on it. And then it had these words in abbreviated form in Latin. It said, Tiberius Caesar, Divi Augusti, Filius Augustus. Tiberius Caesar, the worshipful son of the divine Augustus. And the flip side had the inscription Pontifex Maximus, high priest. 
So you can understand why the Jews hated the tax. Not only did it go to Rome, but the coin itself contained blasphemy. It hailed Caesar as divine. Continuing in the text, then he said to them, therefore, because it has Caesar's image on it, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Um, There's a lot that can be learned about this pithy little sentence. I just want to say three things about it. First, the state or the government uh, is not implicitly or de facto the enemy. And Jesus teaches respect for it. So it's translated render in our text today is at other times translated give back. Um, So in other words, we're not asked or Jesus is not asking them to give taxes as if they come out of something that's theirs in the first place. But to give back that which belonged to another in the first place. The state performs services that you benefit from, like water, sewage, highways, defense, to standards in food, buildings, and education, so on and so on. And while many, if not all of these, need reformation, they nonetheless are intended as a service to the people. So when the state serves, it is ingrate to refuse payment for its services. Contrast this with one of Jesus' nearby contemporaries. His name is Judas the Golanite. And he says, what is taxation but an introduction to slavery? Jesus could have responded this way to them. This was in the air. A story by Senator Ernest F. Hollings uh, can illustrate a widespread attitude to government like this. He says, a veteran returning from Korea went to college on the GI Bill, bought his house with an FHA loan, saw his kids born in a VA hospital, started a business with an SBA loan, got electricity from TVA, and then water from a project funded by the EPA. His kids participated in the school lunch program and made it through college courtesy of government-guaranteed student loans. His parents retired to a farm on their Social Security, getting electricity from the REA and the soil tested by the USDA. When the father became ill, his life was saved with a drug developed through NIH. The family was saved from financial ruin by Medicare. Then, one day... He wrote a letter to his congressman, an angry letter, complaining about paying taxes. He said he was upset about paying taxes for all those welfare programs created for, quote, ungrateful people, unquote. So look, as many problems and issues and ethical dilemmas that exist in our government today, I assure you, It was worse in the Roman Empire. 
these are the people who, after all, crucified Jesus. So again, the first point is that the state or the government is not implicitly or de facto the enemy. And second is this, the state cannot be your final authority. The first part of Jesus' answer is to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, which at most is taxes, honor, and respect. And at least, depending on your interpretation, is a coin. But the second part of the answer is to render or give back to God what is God's. Jesus masterfully brings to mind the doctrine of Imago Dei, of the image of God, that humanity is made in the image of God, which is said in Genesis 1.26. So yeah, the coin bears Caesar's image, so we'll pay taxes, but all humanity bears God's image. You bear God's image. Which means God deserves all of you, your whole and full self. You see, Jesus puts politics in its place, not as obsolete, but as penultimate. It must fall under our ultimate allegiance to Jesus. So again, government is not implicitly the enemy, although it can at times become the enemy which is why it can never be the Christian's first or final authority. Third, Jesus gives us an answer that allows and encourages political engagement while warning us of idolatry. This is because he knows that we are first and foremost worshiping people. All of us, atheists, Christians, or somewhere in between, find something or someone to give meaning, order, and direction to our lives. All of us find something, not only that we give worth to, but that we use to define our own worth. And that is essentially worship. This is why John Calvin famously says, right, the human heart is an idol-making machine. It's a factory of idols. We all find something to put in place of God. And to be honest, my concern for the American church today is that she has made politics an idol. That she is all too willing to bow down to an elephant or a donkey. You see, the Jewish legitimate concern over the tax coin was that it had the image an inscription of Caesar on it. So any good Jew would call to mind the second commandment right away. From Exodus 20, they'd hear, you shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Or they might even recall Jesus' earlier words from Matthew 6 in his Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, 
or God and a coin. Jesus answers the Pharisees and the Herodians by putting Caesar in his proper place, which is under the lordship of God. You see, it's a matter of priorities in one sense, because whatever you have as your highest allegiance will inevitably color, shape, and affect your lower priorities. I've worked in a lot of restaurants, and every time that you're getting certified for health code and health regulations, you learn that you should not put raw meat, whether it's uh, chicken, beef, anything, on the top shelf in the fridge, but especially chicken. And the reason is because if you have fresh vegetables underneath it, fruit, anything like that, and the packaging rips or the fridge turns off for a little bit, and all of a sudden you get raw chicken drippings coming down onto your fruits and vegetables, they're spoiled. It spills over. This is why Christ must be our ultimate authority. He is king, he is Lord, and that will spill over into any way that we relate to politics. If your political affiliation is your top priority, it will distort, pollute, and marginalize the lordship of Jesus in your life every time. When the desires of our hearts are disordered, when the allegiance of our lives is not to Christ first, we will inevitably be worshiping an idol. An idol, of course, is anything or anyone that we make into God. And Anne Lamott so well says this. She sort of reverses it. And she says, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out God hates all the same people you do. I hope that gets a chuckle. And I hope that also gets a little, ooh, you know, a little conviction in there. Did for me. See, when we worship Christ uh, in song, in prayer, in liturgy, in service, what happens is our disordered loves, desires, and allegiances, they actually become reordered because we proclaim not just with our mouths, but with our hearts and lives, our emotions, our full selves, that Jesus is Lord. We sing that. And by definition, that means no one else can be. If Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. And in any discussion of politics, we have to begin here or else we run the serious risk of idolatry. And if we are not careful, we start to believe that Caesar really is God. I mean, the coin says it. We start to believe the state really does have all the answers. Or we start to believe that government may actually be able to give us everything we need. We seek the kingdom without the king. Now, this is all also one way to think about the gospel. The word itself in the Hebrew is beser or besorah, and, and it would be used to announce usually political news. For example, when King David's army would win at war, uh, they would bring the gospel of victory to David and to Israel. They would give him the besorah. In the Greek, it's this word euangelion, 
EU, EU, meaning good, and angelion, meaning announcement or news. It's good news. It was a technical term for an imperial declaration, and it had specific political meaning for the, for the biblical authors. Now, it had a very particular meaning for the Romans. Good news for them was this simple declaration, Caesar is Lord. And that declaration, of course, had numerous applications. So they might say good news when a herald would bring news from the front lines of battle. Or good news, again, as this imperial declaration that the enemy had been defeated. And in classic Roman fashion, good news was often euphemistic doublespeak for the announcement that Caesar had conquered you and you were now his subjects. There was this Roman inscription found, and it's dated back to just a few years before Jesus' birth. And this is what it says about the euangelion, or the good news, of the Roman Empire. <clears throat> it says, Augustus was sent as Savior. The birthday of the son of the god Caesar was the beginning of his good news, of his euangelion. This was Rome's gospel. It was a euangelion enforced at spear point. Augustus, the son of God, was the savior. And he offered peace to all who would bow to him. You've probably heard of the Pax Romana, right? the peace of Rome. Well, then Jesus bursts on the scene. And how does the gospel of Mark begin but to say, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, son of God. These are fighting words. I mean, this is why King Herod wanted to have all the firstborns killed. This is why Pilate, full well knowing that Jesus is innocent of the crimes described of him, washes his hands of it and lets him be condemned. See, both understood that the claim that was being made was that the good news of a different king would overturn Rome from the bottom up. A king who offers a piece of more depth and substance than Rome could ever offer. The gospel of King Jesus was a direct challenge to the gospel of Rome. See, Jesus announces that the kingdom of God is here now. That where we consent and align to the rule and reign of God, his kingdom is here. His kingdom has come. The invitation to believe this gospel is an invitation to proclaim Jesus as Lord. This was dangerous for first century Christians. I mean, many early followers of Jesus died brutal and public deaths because they worshiped Jesus as the ultimate authority. And I think this is why Paul, he admonishes the Roman Christians in the book of Romans chapter 10, verse nine. It's this famous verse that hopefully is now put into a bit more context. Paul says, 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is good news. That's especially good news for those Roman Christians amidst persecution and trial. And these words are for you this morning as well. So let them fill you with hope. Hear these words from the Apostle Paul again. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So in these tumultuous political waters, may the proclamation, Jesus is Lord, rest always on your lips. And the reality of the resurrection orient your heart towards belief, anchoring you firmly to the only good news that can save your life. Amen.